You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Nicole Militello. After months and months of waiting, the show must go on. Today, several major Broadway shows are returning. Stages have been dark, audience seats have been empty, and thousands of workers who make up the cast and crew have been left in limbo since March of last year. And it's not just Broadway, it's creative performances across the board, affecting musicians, dancers, artists, actors, and more. We're going to talk about the return of the arts and how the industry was impacted with Aisha Ahmed Post, the executive director of the Newman Center for the Performing Arts here in Denver, in just a moment. But first, I want to share a story from University of Denver alum Karen Meek. She spent nearly two decades as a stage manager. She most recently was working on Disney's The Lion King, and now with Broadway's return, she's part of a new show. She shared with me what the past year and a half looked like from her view. In 2020, I was the production stage manager on Disney's The Lion King National Tour. We were in South Bend, Indiana when the shutdown happened. Um, That was March 12th. um, And we were all on the road. So we got sent back home. Um, And for some of us, we didn't have places to live. And some of us did. I went to live with my parents because my apartment was rented out. and it was a huge shock. I was out of work up until just now, September of 2021, um, because of it. When we originally shut down, they said, we'll see you guys in about two weeks or so. And I remember overpacking, thinking, there's no way it's going to be two weeks. It's probably going to be about four. <laughs> um, and that was not OK. Um, it, when you're on the road, you live and work with, every, with the people you travel with. and it, it's a, such an intimate family because we're a moving city of 117 people that pick up and go every time. Um, and then to suddenly with like the snap of a finger be ripped from that. And again, for many of them not have a place to live or to go was shocking. I can't, I can't even begin to describe how devastating it is for us. Um, for me personally, I give my life to my profession. I always had. Um, or I did before all this, um, and it was so hard to be completely unable. It's not like I could remote in doing a show, so there was no work. It's a proven fact that audience members who attend a performance together, their hearts sync up, and the rhythms that they keep, they are affected by everybody around them. And I think it's that community emotion and feeling that we lose without the arts. Um, That creationary force drives us all. That's why we're humans. We're always out there creating something, whether it be a business or whether it be an art form. Um, But there's something about that synchronicity of heart that just says to me, as, as human beings, we belong in a group together and experiencing something together. And we've lost that. I think all of us have discovered things that we didn't know were missing Uh, in this industry because we work at night primarily and sometimes you'll have rehearsal or work calls all day long. If you have children, you don't get to see them very much. And we've had a year and a half of people being able to put their children to bed and wake up and like make breakfast in the morning with them. Um, That wasn't possible before. And I can almost guarantee you that uh, the people will get the shows back up, the ones that have been open. And then you're going to see a mass of resignations. 
they'll do what they feel is their duty to get the show back up. And mm-hmm. then they're going to say, you know what? No, I'm not going to work six days a week, 80 hours a week. And I want to spend time with my children and my family. Going forward, I have set boundaries for my life because I learned in this year and a half, there are things that I love to do that I don't have anything to do with about my, my profession. And that's, that's the benefit that I've taken away from this time. So much self-evaluation and so much growth has happened as a result of it. Um, and I'm weirdly grateful for that time, um, but I am determined not to go back to the unhealthy practices um, in my work-life balance that were there before. It's not worth it anymore. That was DU alum Karen Meek. Now to the executive director of the Newman Center for the Performing Arts, Aisha Ahmed Post. She shares the impact the pandemic had on the arts, and she starts from back in March of 2020 when stages abruptly went dark when the pandemic hit. What I really felt horrible for were, were the artists themselves, because the way that it works in most of these cases is that they only get paid once the performance happens. So they're not paid up front for you know rehearsing or for um, training up to be back on stage or any of those things. They get their fee after they've um, provided that service. Um, there's been a lot of conversations about that since then and whether that's an equitable um, uh, way to construct these contracts, but it's certainly uh, a long-standing practice in the industry. So all of a sudden, all these folks who had tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of contracts and you know plans for savings and paying their mortgage and whatever it is, uh, just evaporated overnight. And it was really scary. Um, it was really scary for not just the artists, but then also for uh, the overhire backstage, the stage crew, uh, the volunteers, the part-time box office staff, the hospitality staff. It's a really complex and intricate industry um, that reaches a lot of different areas. And I don't think people always necessarily realize that. Yeah. And I think that's a really important part of this conversation because when the shutdown happened, a lot of workers were able to very easily transition to working from home for their jobs. And some artists were able to, and it took a little working out, you know, Um, but for a lot of them, their job was just really non-existent for months. So can you just talk about some of the challenges that were associated with that? You know, it's interesting that you ask about that because the, the reason we were all able to switch was because we had Zoom and Teams and you know, all of this infrastructure that we had sort of been building out for office workers, right? Uh, The folks that did the best, I think, during the pandemic were the arts organizations that had a tremendous amount of video archive. Uh, So I'm thinking of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater. I'm thinking of the Metropolitan Opera, right? These are folks who had years and years of high quality product that they could stream or make available on Facebook or what have you. Um, They did great on pivoting to, you know, being a more virtual provider. Um, It's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. And I'm not really sure people um, fully realize those implications either because, you know, there's the broadcast rights, there's the licensing for the work, um, there's recording rights, there's the streaming rights, there's all these different ways that you have to sort of navigate that and our contracts aren't made with the intention to broadcast or live stream this content. And so usually that's a whole different, you know, bag of tricks. So um, that was a that was a pretty tough transition. Uh, I think a lot of artists also found that they just didn't know 
how to monetize that time, right? And there was a sort again, you know, you've seen tens of thousands of dollars of contracts evaporate and you're sitting at home and you're just trying to think about how you're going to frankly make, make some money to eat, right? And um, so I think there was a lot of streaming of things on Facebook, you know, and then that kind of petered out. But the good news is that it did allow for a lot of uh, folks to make work with people that aren't necessarily in their uh, vicinity, right? So, you know, again, using all of these, you know, collaboration platforms, people could record albums, they could, you know, play bass on, you know, somebody else's project. And uh, we got really good at, you know, building even more, I mean, it was already part of the process for the music industry, but even more so, I think individual and independent artists were um, moving towards that sort of uh, structure. And, you know, I think a lot of people also kind of sat there and said, I don't know what to do with this, you know, it, not everybody had this well of creative expression, you know, just sitting at home. I think a lot of folks were sort of dealing with the shock of, of what it was, just like everybody else. And there are a lot of different reports, but a lot of them are estimating that there was billions of dollars in financial loss for the arts industry during the shutdown. What are some of the financial consequences of that? I don't know that I could possibly overstate how catastrophic this was for the arts industry. Um, you know, there's there's the ticket revenue, right? So there's that piece of it, concessions, parking, et cetera. Um, but then there's also the donation side of things. Um, there is the auxiliary, you know, marketing or corporate sponsorships, foundation grants, all the rest of these things that go into the portfolio of revenue that you get from, um, I'm speaking specifically from a performing arts center standpoint, but also for, you know, an arts organization, um, a nonprofit arts organization. Um, without doing those shows, it's extraordinarily difficult. Now we did you know, thanks to the um, National uh, Independent Venues Association, which was created in the middle of the pandemic, um, which was kind of a, an amazing moment. Uh, they were able to lobby Congress for the Save Our Stages Act. We were able to get a $16 billion uh, relief grant from Congress. Um, unfortunately, uh, the rollout of that was not um, pristine. Uh, it took over six months for anybody to see any of those funds. and you know, when you haven't had any revenue for nine months, six months more can be, you know, life or death. So that was a little difficult for us. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than, than relief grants, I mean, a lot of folks, um, you know, had to lay off staff. I'm seeing a lot of folks who have changed to different industries. Um, you know, some of them dropped out of the workforce uh, to take care of kiddos or elders or, uh, you know, whatever else, um, some people realized that they just didn't want to work 80 hours a week or yeah. that it was really nice to have their nights and weekends to themselves. Um, so I think it was a fairly profound shift, um, certainly for arts workers um, and thinking about what we want our life balance, uh, work-life balance to look like. Yeah, and the financial loss is really just one part of this. What different like creative elements do you think were lost over this time? I mean, we lost entire organizations. You know, we lost entire dance companies folded, theaters folded, you know, musical groups folded. So we, we have a huge loss in, in, in that part of our ecosystem. Uh, I think we lost, you know, a little bit of, it's going to take a lot of work, let me put it that way, 
to get audiences back into the theater to go, make a habit out of going to arts events, um, you know, because they either feel reticent, even with the vaccines um, and with all of the work everybody's done and putting new filtration systems in, what have you. Uh, you know, I think we were doing really well, and then the Delta variant just changed everything. And you're seeing a lot of um, uh, ticket buyer hesitancy because they just don't know what's going to happen in three months. Um, so that's a pretty lasting effect. Um, and I think we're also starting to sort of question, you know, what what is the most important in terms of what we do? You know, do we have to be running ourselves ragged? You know, trying to put on all of these events all all year. You know, what does the market really need and how do we make sure this is a sustainable field that doesn't take advantage of its arts workers? Um, because I think that was part of, there's always been this sort of perception like, oh, well, if you're going to you know, be in something as, you know, quote unquote, frivolous as the arts, then you should also starve for the privilege, right? And it's like, no, this, this is a, a massive part of the American economy. Um, we are a you know, net exporter of arts and culture Articulture and net export uh, for the United States compared to what we import. Um, we are a bigger industry than agriculture. Uh, we're, I mean, it's a massive, massive piece of how America is seen in the global economy. Um, and we need to start treating arts workers like the real, like the work it is and not expecting people to, you know, not make any money and also work 80 to 100 hours a week. Yeah, definitely. And I want to have more of that conversation a little bit later on too. On the flip side of that, do you think anything was gained during this time away during the shutdown? Yeah, I think it was really good for everybody to have a moment to just sort of sit. You know, there was a lot of rhetoric at the beginning of the pandemic that said, oh, you know, the arts are essential. And you know what? There came a point where, nope, we weren't. We're not like we weren't essential in the way that frontline medical workers were essential, right? Now, listen, everybody sat there at home and listened to music and watched TV shows and read books, right? These are all ventures and engaging with, with arts in, in one way or the other. So I don't think that that should be discounted in any way, shape, or form. But because we were grinding to a halt, uh, a lot of us had an opportunity to actually sit down and think for a moment. Um, and I started my job at DU on August 1st of 2020. So uh, I also had the opportunity to sort of sit and breathe for a second and wonder about what I wanted to do with the venue and you know where I want the Newman Center to grow, uh, who we want to be for the community, for the city of Denver, for the University of Denver. Um, so that was really, really refreshing because I'm not sure that I'll ever have an opportunity like that again. Yeah. And that's something I've actually heard a lot that it was just a time to like kind of reprioritize and think about what you're doing. And like you mentioned before, a lot of workers who weren't able to tuck their kids into bed every night had that time um, during the break. And I'm wondering, how do you see this time to reset impacting performers and artists moving forward? Yeah. I mean, certainly there was, um, you know, again, a brain drain. Uh, I think we did see um, some folks leave the field. I've also been really pleasantly surprised to see how many people were willing to uh, stay on throughout the entire pandemic and were looking forward to coming back to this because this is the work that they want to be in. It's something they're passionate about and the thing that they love to do. Um, I think it was interesting, actually, uh, I, I forget if it was Dance or Point Magazine 
I did a whole article on the number of uh, ballerinas who took that time to have babies, um, you know, and to think through, uh, I mean, especially for such a physically demanding job as that, you know, it, it gave them that opportunity that they might not otherwise have had because it's such a short career. Um, so, and I think most of all, it gave us all a moment to think about what we want uh, a sustainable touring arts ecosystem to look like, right? So what should the payment structure look like? Um, you know, do presenters or venues have too much power uh, when it comes to a force majeure clause? Should we be approaching these contracts more as an equitable partnership between artist and presenter? Um, what is the real role of an agent or manager? Um, and how do we make sure that everybody who's involved in the industry um, is getting a fair shake? Because the agents and managers, that's a whole other part we haven't talked about. When the artists don't get paid, the agents don't get paid. So they've done all that work already, right? They, they booked that tour two years ago. They advanced the whole thing. They've done all of the work and they did not get paid for it. So I think there's a lot of reckoning about you know, the uh, imbalance of power and the justice of the arts and commerce sector. Um, and you add that in with you know, the, uh, the protests and the movement around the murder of George Floyd. And um, the arts have always been at the forefront of any social justice or economic justice movement. Um, and so that compounded. Um, and there were a lot of conversations about, you know, okay, well, such and such an arts organization put out their Black Lives Matter um, you know, uh, statement on their website, but then didn't actually do anything about it. So how are we holding them accountable? Um, so I thought those were all really important, interesting conversations. And I do think that the, um, the system is fundamentally different than it was on March 1st of 2020. Yeah. And a lot of this um, articles that I've been reading have also brought up the point just of dancers kind of missing out on their prime years or like child actors who have now phased out of the role that they were performing. Um, and with just like the relaunch, people having to like recondition their bodies and voices to get back to performing on the stage. How hard of a process is that? Very. <laughs> um, you know, so I'll, I can speak from my own personal experience mm -hmm. uh, as a pianist. Um, you know, so when I was really serious about Playing, I was practicing realistically probably around three to five hours a day. And then I would also have rehearsals and performances and all the rest of that, right? Um, there's a tremendous amount of work that goes into that level of um, fine motor skill, right? That level of physical technique and finesse, and also, you know, thinking through your artistic expression memorizing these hugely complicated scores, um, you know, just all of it. There's, there's a, an incredible amount of preparation. Um, dancers, you know, I think it's really, really tough to keep yourself at a professional level if you're not dancing every day in the studio. I mean, you can give yourself, you know, class every day, um, but that's not going to be the same as being able to do, you know, hours and hours of rehearsal for whatever ballet is coming up. And so, um, I really feel for those folks because it's going to be a really rough road getting back to that. Um, and uh, I mean, not that they can't do it, they absolutely will. Um, and don't get me wrong, plenty of people were doing everything they could to stay in shape and, and uh, at the top of their game during the pandemic. Um, but it's going to be a lot of work for those folks. 
Yeah. We recently did a podcast on like the Olympics being pushed back for a year. And we were having the same conversation basically about athletes. You know, it's like, how do you continue to train in this off time when everything is shut down? And really the same applies for performers. Yes. I actually, a lot of that, um, the Olympics, sometimes I find them hard to watch because it does feel so much like a performance, right? You have one shot to do that dive perfectly, right? You have one shot to you know, nail those 32 fortes or whatever it is. Um, and that pressure and that performance anxiety and, you know, the training of your mental uh, landscape to be able to, to perform at that highest level when there's so much on the line, I think is um, something that folks don't really see or really think about until they're really confronted with that. Um, but a lot of times we're doing this on, on stages that just aren't as, um, global as the Olympics, um, but are nonetheless um, just as uh, competitive and fierce. And there's always the, the risk of injury, you know, um, if you're not in your best shape. Another thing that I want to talk about, we've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but I think it's really an important part of the conversation is um, the conversation that's arisen out of this time for a push for better working conditions and critiquing some of Broadway's priorities. There have been some articles recently about some Broadway stars who have said they would not return because of this. And I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit more about that and what kind of conversations you're hearing. You know, I I'm not as familiar with the Broadway um, side of things, but I do think that there's a host of um, inequitable and difficult work environments, right? I mean, at least with the Broadway shows, they're doing eight shows a week. Um, a lot of times you're singing and dancing and acting and, you know, you're exhausted at the end of the day, especially on those um, two, two show days, um, Wednesdays. And um, so I think that that's something that's really worth considering, right? And again, it's the question of, are folks being treat, uh, paid fairly? Are there, uh, should we really be rethinking what we consider to be an equitable way of achieving what we want to do? Um, you know, and for, for a house like, you know, the Met or, you know, Broadway house or even some of these bigger ones, you know, how do you make sure that artists can perform at their best and that we're not um, burning them out? Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but, you know, dancers, usually there, there is a limit to their career, right? They, um, they have to retire at a certain amount of time because, you know, it just takes a toll on your body. Um, but when you think of opera singers, for instance, right, their voices don't mature until they're a little bit older, usually in their late 20s, early 30s. So then you have this whole period of time in your 20s where, you know, you might be sitting in a core somewhere or you might be, you know, just training and training and training or hiding out in grad school or whatever it is um, until your voice matures enough for you to sing these really big juicy roles. Um, so when you've done all of that work and then you get into the environment and it's abusive, um, when it's uh, sexist or exploitative because of the power differential, I think that that is a moment where we all need to step back and look. And um, I think pretty much any artist could tell you all sorts of stories about you know, the director or you know, the, the person in charge taking advantage of this, you know, the younger artists who are just hungry to make their career happen. And because of that power dynamic, um, you know, they can sort of force these younger artists to just do whatever it takes to, to make the show happen. And I'm sorry, it's just not, it, that should not be part of it. Um, people should not be um, sexually harassed at work just because they chose to go into the performance 
Um, they should not be subject to 80 hour work weeks. They should not be subject to, um, you know, <laughs> like uh, fat shaming or whatever else is happening out there. I mean, it's, it, um, I think we're having a real reckoning about the way that we treat each other um, on, on stage in the rehearsal room. Another New York Times article that I was reading is just talking about how the return of the arts like Broadway and other concert halls is really vital to cities come back, especially places like New York City. And I just wanted to get your take. Why is it so important for the reestablishment of this culture to kind of lead the way for our return? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, a city is only as dynamic as its art scene, right? Um, and that can be a really broad you know, question about culinary arts and literary arts and theater, dance, music, film, whatever it is, right? But that is, without any of those pieces of, of the fabric of our society, we lose a really important part of our civic conversation, right? Um, we lose our common humanity. And I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot that's, that can be said about a city that values its arts um, because it shows that they care about who they are and what they have to say compared to another city, you know, elsewhere in the country or the world. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of like feel good videos going around on social media of like theaters full again, audience clapping, performers back on stage and traveling on the road. What does the return of the arts represent and what does that mean for you? To me, it means resilience. Um, it's a really overwhelming uh, feeling to be able to say that we're going to be able to have shows again. Um, I went to a show for the first time indoors a couple weeks ago, and I had sort of forgotten just like the visceral feeling of listening to live music with a bunch of other bodies in the space, and um, that that is just as much a part of the performance as of the performer itself themselves. Um, it's been a very, very long 18 months. <laughs> And um, it will take us a long time to recover from this, but I think there's just so much, uh, if, if anything, it's just solidified um, that I you know, love to do this work and I love to share these artists with the audiences and um, how much I'm looking forward to, to inviting people back into the Newman Center or you know, to see them go to the Denver Center for the Performing Arts or Red Rocks or whatever else in that this is part of why we all choose to live in Denver. To read more about the financial impact of the arts or to see the details for the upcoming season at the Newman Center for the Performing Arts, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, Tamara Chapman is our managing editor, and James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed. <laughs>